The title of the sermon this morning is A Hymn of Praise to Our Indescribable God. A Hymn of Praise to Our Indescribable God. I want you to to think of a time in your life, think of a time in your life when you came face to face with your own weakness. Think of a time in your life, might, might be this morning, uh, might be this past week, when you came face to face with your own weakness and your own smallness and your own frailty. And I want you to ask yourself this question, what did that period in my life teach me about myself and about God? What did that time of lowness or stillness or weakness or smallness, what did it teach me about me and what did it teach me about God? Because I think at some point all of us come to a place in our lives, and it's probably different for everyone in here. We come to a place in our lives where uh, we realize how small and weak and inadequate and insufficient we really are. We bump up into some wall that we can't really seem to get over or find our way around. Uh, and we realize how feeble and how frail and faulty we really are. Well, in a somewhat humorous way, uh, our family just went to... Uh, to to the, the beach for a vacation this past week in a somewhat humorous way. I saw this played out with one of my kids uh, in the ocean. Um, little Caleb is two and a half. And when I say little, uh, he, we celebrated when he got to one percentile on the growth chart. Uh, it was a big deal. He was under one percentile for a long time. He made it to one, then he made it to two. And finally, I think he's somewhere around five percentile. And so we've kind of celebrated that. The one after him, Micah, is almost 90 percentile in, uh, in everything. And so uh, they're pretty, pretty different. But I put Caleb down in the water for really the first time on his own. And he had no knowledge of the undertow or currents or sand moving around his feet, you know. And so I set him down in there and I stepped back just a step or two to watch and see what's going to happen. And it wasn't long before I had to pull a, a rescue 911, if you remember that show from the 90s, where I come flying in to swoop him up uh, because it, the undertow's kind of sat him on his bottom and then some wave knocks him over and he goes tumbling across the beach, you know. And uh, all of his brothers are laughing. Uh, I don't think it's real funny. Um, and so I run up and I scoop him out of the water. But his tiny little frame was no match for the power of the water. It was no match for the power of the water. And every time I visit the beach, every year, I stand and I look out over uh, the, the beach. I look out over the waves. I look out over just the vastness of the horizon. Um, and I just think about how immense and vast the ocean must be, but yet God holds it in the palm of his hand. How great, how majestic is our God. And then I have this this. It's not a competing, but it's really a simultaneous feeling of how small uh, and insignificant, yet significant, I am in the midst of all that. Let me, let me say that again. How insignificant, yet significant, I am. We, we are very much people of significant insignificance. You know, sometimes we all, all of us, get a little too big for our britches, as mom or grandma used to say, right? Uh, but when you stand and look at the ocean and realize God spoke that into being, uh, it really puts us in our place of how majestic and how unfathomable our God really must be. And so just a side note before we jump in and read the scripture together. One of the sad realities I think of life is that when problems get big in our view, when problems get big in our view, what happens to our, our view of God? God becomes very small. Not that God actually gets any smaller, but what happens is our problems are so large in our view that we can't see anything else except for what is right in front of us. And our view of God becomes smaller. And so we lose sight of God's majesty in the midst of our 
messes. And that happens to all of us. And so the great thing about Psalm chapter 8 is it truly helps us to recapture a sense of the wonder and the awe and the amazement at God's greatness in creation and our significant insignificance in the vastness of God's universe. So let's read together Psalm 8 verses 1 through 9. Wonderful hymn of praise. Let's read that together. It says, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent, or your translation may say majestic, is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Your translation may say you have established praise from the mouths of infants and babies. Verse 3, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? What is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God. The word there means, uh, some, some translations say angelic beings or angels. Some say it means God. It means in the created order we are lower than God. You made him little less than God. And crowned him with glory and honor. You made him rule over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All the sheep and oxen as well as the animals in the wild. The birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. Verse 9. Lord our Lord. How, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Father we ask you to help us during this time to understand. To rightly understand your word. To think about it well so we can apply it to our lives. Help us to praise you today in whatever circumstance we're in. God, we always have something to praise you for. Help us to become more and more a praising people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we, we've looked at Psalm 1, we've looked at Psalm 3, and now we're skipping ahead to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is the very first hymn of praise in the Psalter. Remember that word, Psalter. It's the very first hymn of praise you find in the book of Psalms. And it's the only hymn in the Old Testament that is directly written and addressed to God. So the other ones are about God. This one is written to Him as if they are singing or praying this song or prayer to Him. You'll also notice an important word at the beginning there. It says, O Lord, our Lord. O Lord, our Lord. Lord, this is an important word. It's a plural pronoun, which doesn't suggest an individual singing this song, but a church body singing this song. So as I'm studying this this past week, I go to Emily and I say, Emily, I, I love this song right here. Uh, that's from Psalm chapter eight. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's sing that together because that is taken directly from Psalm eight. So that is the intention of what Psalm eight was written for is the body of Christ. To sing together, to lift up as a corporate praise to his name. In this beautiful song of praise, David is in awe. He is in awe of the majesty of God in creation. But yet as big and immense and vast as God is, he would lovingly remember and care for his imperfect, feeble, frail little people down here on earth. And so we're going to look at Psalm 8 under three headings. Three very simple headings if you're jotting down notes. Just write these down. Number one, God created us. Number two, God cares for us. And number three, God crowns us. So God created us, God cares for us, and God crowns us. So let's look at verses one and two where it talks about God creating 
us. Verses 1 and 2, the psalm begins by addressing God directly using his personal name first. So when I walked in this morning, I see Dirk in the sound booth up there, and I say, Dirk, I called Dirk by his personal name. Dirk, how are you doing this morning? That's how I addressed him when I walked in. At the beginning of this psalm, uh, the psalmist is addressing God in his personal name first, and then using another word in the Hebrew that's actually different. So they sound the same. In the English, it sounds kind of repetitive. Oh, Lord, our Lord. You know, oh, oh, Dirk, our Dirk, you know, um, but but really what they're what they're doing is a personal name first and then actually using a title of God. So if I were to walk in and greet Dirk this morning in this way, I'd say, oh, Dirk, our keeper of the sound. Uh, good to see you this morning. So that's what's going on when you see that there's a name first, Jehovah, and then a title, Adonai. So, oh, Lord, Jehovah, our Lord, our master, our sovereign, our Adonai. You say, well. Why does that really matter? Why are you taking time to tell us that? Well, it teaches us something awesome about the name of God. It teaches us that the very name of God, his very name is synonymous with greatness and glory. Like his name is equal to uh, greatness and majesty and beauty and awesomeness and every kind of adjective we can come up with. It is synonymous with those things. So think about in your life, the most influential person you've ever met in your life, the person uh, who really meant the most in your life, they inspired you, they encouraged you, and when you say their name, you may say, man, that person gets two thumbs up. But their name is not synonymous with majesty. Their name is not synonymous with greatness and glory and awesomeness. Their names can't compare to all that is packed inside the personal name of our God. And so part of Psalm 8 is to remind us how excellent is our God by his very name. And here's the awesome truth of it. We can still call on him as our father. Can we not? When one of my kids comes up to me uh, this morning, daddy, I love you. And they put their arms up you know, they put their arms up and I reach down and I pull them into my arms. They call out to me as a little child and I receive them. The God of the universe that spoke everything into existence. You know him through Jesus Christ, his son. You can call out to him and he scoops you into his arms, into his presence. Let me stop and ask a question. How does that stir your heart? Does it stir your heart? How does it stir your heart that the God who spoke the ocean into being and sustains the tides loves to hear you turn to him and call his name? What is your response to his majesty? If you say, well, I really don't have a response, honestly. I'm just kind of flat. I'm just kind of out of gas. I'm just kind of far from God right now. Maybe this morning what Psalm 8 is for you is a drawing near to majesty in order to feel that response of praise that Psalm 8 is supposed to cause us to feel. In verse 1 it says, God's glory is set above the heavens. His glory is set above the heavens. In other words, God, your glory is so vast and so immeasurable that the heavens can't even hold it. There's kind of a double meaning here. When it says God's glory is above the heavens, it's talking about in status, but also in location. Not just above the skies, but in status and in weight and in prominence. God's glory is above even the skies. In theology, we call this God's transcendence. Don't, don't walk out on me, okay? Because I throw out a big, big word here. In theology, 
Uh, this is God's transcendence. You say, what does that mean? It means he's greater than creation. He's outside of it. He's above it. And listen to this. He's not confined inside of it. He's not confined inside of time. He's not confined inside of words. He's not confined inside of ideas. When I explain this to children, here's what I think about. You, I, I know it's July, but when you think about Christmas time, uh, you think about like snow globes. Everybody somewhere at a Christmas gathering gets a snow globe. Somebody gives one, right? And what, what does a kid love to do with a snow globe? Shake it up and watch the snow just kind of flutter everywhere. And then it gets still and then you shake it up and then the snow just kind of flutters everywhere. I ask kids, is that snowman going to ever get outside of that snow globe? No, the answer is no. That snowman is confined inside that snow globe unless... The kid throws it down and smashes it and the snowman's coming out. But other than that, that snowman is staying put. God is not confined in any kind of way whatsoever. He is free from everything except for he cannot be untrue to who he is. God is not confined. But the awesome thing is this. Even though God is transcendent outside of time, watch this. David moves in verse 2 from God's transcendence to God's eminence. His transcendence... To his eminence. And what does eminence mean? His nearness. So his bigness and his vastness and far beyond all everything that we can think of. And then in verse 2 it comes down to his nearness. You say, where do you see that? Look at verse 2. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies. You have established a stronghold or established praise. This is awesome. So the creator God who knows the number of of grains of sand on the shore is so secure in who he is that he would allow a baby, a child, to sing and speak his praises and that doesn't threaten his greatness one whit. Isn't that awesome? God is so secure in who he is, he would entrust his glory and his praise to a little child singing a song at VBS. Just because that child is small, just because that song is short, just because that song might be off-key, God's glory is not diminished. God is so secure. This was a wow moment for me. Because I don't entrust the channel changer to my kids. <laughs> right? I don't give them the channel changer. But yet God would entrust his glory and praise in creation to the weakest praising words of a small child. Think about this. What are words? What are they? Sound and breath. Sound and breath. Sound, you know, it, it can be really loud. But for the most part, sound is kind of a weak thing overall. What is breath? Breath is terribly weak in itself, but God can use the weakness of this world to bring Him glory and praise. Think about this. The cry of a baby in Egypt in the bulrushes on the Nile River brought an entire nation to its knees in time. Moses. The birth of the baby boy Samuel. He was brought out of barrenness. And what did God use him to do? To save Israel. David was a young boy when he shut the mouth of the giant Goliath. And God used him to display his glory over the most amazing enemy that Israel had ever seen. God didn't need us. God did not create you and I as if he was lacking. And we were going to fill up something that he was lacking. God didn't need that. But he created us in his image to bring him praise and to bring him glory to his great name. Our assignment on this earth is to make his name great. That's simple. Wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever business we are about, our job is to make his name great. And what does John the Baptist say? We must become less. He must become greater. 
Second, God cares for us. Verses 3 and 4. The question here is, in the midst of awesome beauty and creation, why in the world would God care for man? Why would God care for us? Emerson said this, If the stars came out only once in a century, people would stay up all night long gazing at them. When I was in college, I was dating Carrie, uh, and we had not been together but maybe eight months or ten months, something like that, and I heard that there was going to be this meteor shower on the parkway. And so I said, you know, man, it would be really romantic if, uh, if I take her out there and I walk up, you know, at 1 a.m. in the dark, go, 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 you know, go get my car, and, uh, and I drive over and pick her up, and we go to the parkway, and we lay down on our backs, and we watch this meteor shower, you know. And, uh, and i got to admit, it was pretty awesome. I've flubbed up a lot of dates. I've messed up a lot of things in my efforts to uh, be romantic. But that one time, I got it right. And we went to the parkway, and we were watching this meteor shower, and I'll never forget it. Because they're going over our head and there's like this green trail of light following every meteor that's just flying through the sky. And we're just laying there at like 2 or 2.30 looking up. And we're looking at God's creation in awe that God is making this thing happen just by the breath of His mouth. He is an awesome creator God. There is something about creation that is fascinating, is it not? We're coming back home from visiting my parents this past week and we had a trip planned to go watch... Uh, baseball game in Durham, so we're coming back yesterday evening, and I love coming home uh, about 7 or 7.30, something like that in the evening, because when you crest the hill right there on exit 94, you know what I'm talking about? When you're on 40, you get right to 94, that's your first good glimpse of the mountains. You can see it before that, but you get right there and you come, you know, I don't know what mountain it is, I'm not from here, but I know a mountain when I see one, so I'm coming over the hill, and I see this mountain, and I'm like, man, that is awesome. I never, ever get tired of that view. Ever. It is amazing. Walk out here today. Go to the right and look out here to this view. It's just amazing to look at creation. But you know what? For the Jew, it was considered evil to worship creation. There are people that worship the creation instead of the creator today. For the Jews, it was evil to worship creation. But they understood that creation, listen to this, is proof of a loving and living creator. Creation is proof of a loving and and living creator. He sustains all these things. We sing this song, his eye is on the sparrow, right? He is watching over everything. Listen to verse four. This gets really awesome in the Hebrew. Verse four reads like this. What is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? Verse four, David uses two different words, okay? He uses the word enosh, for weak man, and the word Adama for a son of man, which means son of earth or dirt. So the next time you get feeling real good about yourself, just remember, you're an Adama, you're a son of dirt, okay? Uh, you're a dirt bag. Um, I'm just kidding. But David uses two words to describe our weakness and our frailty. We are sons of earth, sons of dirt. We are weak, yet God is mindful. It says he remembers us, and the picture is like a new mother. When a new mother has a baby, that mother can't take that baby in her arms and just lay it aside and walk off for a week or two. That baby has that child in its arms and loves and cares and nurtures for that child. That is a picture of our father. Zephaniah 3.17, I just thought of, says that he rejoices over us with singing. It says that God cares for us. You know what this literally means in the Hebrew? This is awesome. Listen. It means he visits with us. He cares for us, but it literally means he visits with us. 
Listen to John 1.14. Listen. Hear the visit. Listen. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. That's visiting, right? He lived among us for 33 years. He visited with us. And what did his 33-year visit teach us? The end of John 1.14. He showed us the glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How do we know God cares for us? Because he sent his son to visit with us. Listen, God formed our world. And in the garden, he put every need provided for for Adam and Eve. Every single thing was cared for. Then he continued his perfect care through Jesus' death on the cross as our substitute. Providing Jesus for the payment for our sin. To fix every broken relationship in this place with him. And then one day, you know how God is going to care for you? He's going to send Christ back for you. He's not going to leave you like an orphan in the world. He's going to send his son back for you to retrieve you and to take you home to be with him. And you know what's going to happen? All that is broken, all that is sad, all that is untrue, all that is wrong, all that has been lied about is going to be fully, perfectly, completely restored. That day is coming. It is coming for us. The question is, are we ready for it? Let me ask you a question. When did you last stop to thank God for His perfect care for you? We're, we're great at prayer requests, aren't we? We're great at prayer requests. But we slack off sometimes in the praise department. When did we stop and say, God, no prayer requests today. You know what, I'm just going to praise you. I'll, I'll bring prayer requests on Tuesday, but Monday is just for praising. When is the last time we praise God as small and insignificant as we are? And then third... God crowns us. Verses 5 through 8, listen to it, I'm going to read it again. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This is where it gets cool. Don't check out on me. We're going, we're going to go down deep here for a second. This is where it gets cool. Verse 5 through 8 talks about the original purpose or intent for man. Our original purpose and intent was to lovingly rule over and steward God's perfect creation. When God put man in the garden, what did he say? Take care of it, rule it, farm it, steward it, name the animals. It is all yours to watch over. Everything was perfect. This was our responsibility, but also our privilege. Everything was subject to man as man remains subject to God. But did man remain subject to God? No. You go to Genesis chapter 3, something happens where instead of functioning like God made us to function, Adam and Eve say, God, we're going to go our own way. We're going to do life our way instead of obeying your command to steer clear of the tree in the center of the garden. Everything else belonged to them but this one thing. You've heard the phrase forbidden fruit, right? You tell your two-year-old, you're... 22-year-old, your 52-year-old, you know, not to do a certain thing, not to touch a certain thing, and what happens? Like something inside of us is like, I have to have that, you know? It's just in us. It's called sin. It's just there. Adam and Eve gave it to us. We can thank them one day in eternity, I would assume. Now, it'll be done away with. We won't thank them. But this was their crown, to be rulers of God's awesome, perfect, majestic creation. What a privilege. What a glorious gift. But what did they do? They rebelled. They went away from God and went their own way. And listen to what happened as a result. 
They inherited a curse and they left their rightful place as kings and queens and stewards over his creation. So instead of a crown, instead of a crown, what did we put on? The shackles of sin and slavery to Satan. We forfeited our crown. We cast it down, not at his feet in worship, but we cast it down and said, God, we don't want this. We want what we want. And so God said, fine, I'm going to give you what is the result of what you want, which is sin and slavery to sin and slavery to Satan. That's the bad news. You, you became something far less than you were created to be. But you know what the good news is? In the New Testament, Jesus is called the second Adam. He's called the second Adam, the second man. He lived a perfect life in our place, displayed total authority over all creation, and fulfilled God's design for humanity. Everything you and I should have been, Jesus was. Everything that we were supposed to be, He was. He didn't become, He was. And when He went to the cross, He traded places with us in that great exchange where He took our sin. And we took his pardon so that we could be set free. Listen to Hebrews 2.9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Sounds just like Psalm 8, right? We see him, talking about Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Christ, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What is the writer of Hebrews doing with Psalm 8? Acknowledging that it's about Adam, but that Jesus perfectly fulfilled Adam's place and ministry. It's applying it and attaching those two things together. God put everything under Adam's feet. Adam walked away from it. Instead, what did Jesus do? He went after it. He retrieved it. He restored it. And then Colossians 1 said, everything is put underneath the feet of Christ. He's the perfect fulfillment of what we read about here in Psalm chapter 8. And so Revelation 1.6, jot that down and go look it up later. It's a beautiful reminder that you and I were not made to wear the shackles of sin, the shackles of slavery to Satan and this world. We were not made to be that. We were made to be restored by and to Jesus and to wear the crown of honor and glory. What does verse 5 say? You crowned him with glory and honor. Christ wore that crown and he gives it to us. And then in verse 9, David bookends his song of praise this way. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. This morning I've got a, a clip. It's a, little, it's a little bit lengthy, but I think you'll find it pretty interesting. It's just a few minutes long. It's from Louis Giglio, the pastor of Passion City in Atlanta. And it talks about, in essence, Psalm 8, how awesome God is in creation, but at the same time, how small and insignificant yet significant we are. So watch this clip and then we'll close up in just a moment. Let's play that clip. This is an amazing thought. A God who is indescribable. You say, well, how do you know that? All you have to do is walk outside on a dark night and look up into the sky and you will know when you look up that this God we're worshiping tonight is beyond our wildest dream. The scripture says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The starry host by the breath of his mouth. We live in a little subdivision in the universe 
It's called the Milky Way Galaxy. In case you didn't know, that's where you live. Some of you are thinking you live in Shady Grove. No, you, you're living in the Milky Way Galaxy. That's your subdivision in the universe, a very big universe that we have to use something called a light year to get around in. You say, well, what's a light year? Well, that's how fast light travels in one year. And we know it's flying 186,000 miles a second. So if light goes 186,000 miles a second for a whole year, it goes 5.88 trillion miles in a year. And that's the measurement or one of the main measurements we use to get around in the universe that God has created. That's how big it is. The foot, not going to help you in God's universe. The yard, of no value to you whatsoever in God's universe. The mile, insignificant. The kilometer, mat, uh, not going to help you uh, getting around in God's universe. We have to use a ruler that is 5.88 trillion miles long to measure things in God's universe. And our home subdivision, the Milky Way galaxy, just came into being. It, cons it's con it consists of billions of stars. Just our subdivision, the Milky Way galaxy. Not hundreds, not millions, not hundreds of millions. Billions of stars in our home subdivision, the Milky Way galaxy. And scientists say that there are hundreds of billions of other subdivisions and galaxies in the known universe. This shot is where we live. It's a little snapshot of the Milky Way galaxy. If you zoom into this star-forming region, see something pretty amazing. This particular shot is a close-up of a star-forming region in our subdivision taken by a friend of ours named Dr. David Block, who's an astronomer down at Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we were down there a few months ago, and he was telling us that if we were to count the billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, one star per second, so if we just started with any one of these, I don't know which one you want to pick. Um, let's just start with this one right here. And we, because I can reach it, and we start one, two, three, four, five. That looks like one, but I'm close enough to see it's two that are close together. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Let's go back over here. Twelve. You're like, oh, please don't count them all. If we counted all the stars in our subdivision, one per second, it would take 2,500 years just to count the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And God says about himself, you, you, you want to know how the universe is telling us that God is big? Through the prophet Isaiah, he says, to whom will you compare me? And who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes to the heavens. Who created all of these. And then he answers for himself. The one who leads forth the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his mighty strength and great power, not one of them is missing. If you want to get a glimpse of it, here's a composite shot of our subdivision. The Milky Way galaxy is taken by combining hundreds of thousands of photographs. Obviously, we haven't managed to get outside of the Milky Way galaxy to take a picture of it, but um, NASA folks are pretty sure that's what it looks like. It has a, a barred nucleus. It's a barred spiral galaxy. And you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's 100,000 light years across. So if you want to go visit your neighbors on the other side of the subdivision, you just have to go 186,000 miles a second for 100,000 years, and boom, you're at their house. Um, in our little neighborhood home called the Milky Way Galaxy. You say, well, where are we? I'm, I'm looking for us on there. You know, we, we got to be right in the center, obviously. I'm sure we're right in that 
right there in that middle. No, we believe it or not, we're not even in the center of our own subdivision, okay? So affirming again tonight, it's not about you and it's not about me. We don't even live in the center of our own subdivision and you don't want to live in the center of the subdivision because it's scary in the center of the subdivision. We, you say, well, where do we live? Well, we live way out between a couple of the spiral arms. You don't want to live in there either because that's dangerous territory inside the bands. We live in that little clear zone between a couple of the bands about two-thirds of the way out. We're living somewhere about there. And you're, you're like, well, I don't, I don't see me. No. Because we couldn't put a mark on the diagram that you could see that would be the right relative size to our solar system. You know, that's our little cul-de-sac in the subdivision that we couldn't even put our solar system on here in relative size to the Milky Way galaxy for you to see. It's that small inside the Milky Way galaxy. Scientists say our solar system is the size of a quarter and the Milky Way galaxy is the size of the North American continent. So our whole solar system is a quarter and the size of an area as big as the North American continent. We're not that consequential in our own subdivision called the Milky Way galaxy. And somewhere in there is a star, one of these billions of stars. It's not the biggest, the baddest, the brightest. It's just one of the stars, the billions of stars. We call it the sun, and around it tonight are orbiting these balls, one of which is called Earth. It's our home. That's you and me. No, I'm not trying to make you feel small. I'm trying to help you see that you are small. But it's significant insignificance. Because as tiny as we are, we are known and prized by majesty. Who sent for us and loves us and knows us. Even though we are teeny tiny little bitty people. On a little bitty speck floating through the vast cosmos that he has made. Just like he could name every star as he called them into being and put them in their places. He could start in this building tonight all the way up in the top with you right there. And he could call you by your name. And he could move to you and call you by your name. And you by your name. And the great creator of all the heavens and the earth could move through this auditorium and call every single person in this building by name tonight. He knows us and is aware of us and loves us and has come to invite us into a relationship with him that will never ever end kind of puts a lot of things in perspective doesn't it how small we really are in the grand scheme of God's plan that he spoke a universe into existence. When he said that, I had two quarters bouncing around in my pocket. And I thought, man, that's our solar system. It's incredible. He's a God that is worthy of our praise and deserves our praise. I want to close, and I'm, I'm closing, I want to close with just a couple of quotes from a book I was reading this past weekend 
by C.S. Lewis is called Reflections on the Psalms. It says a word about praising. Listen to what Lewis says. Listen. And then we'll be finished. Listen up. Lewis says, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. What you enjoy just naturally flows over into praise. When you have a good meal, what do you do? You talk about it, right? He says the world rings with praise, and then he gives lots of examples. And then he said this, I've never noticed, I had not noticed, how the humblest and most balanced and spacious minds praised the most, while the cranks and misfits and malcontents praised the least. He says, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Our praise almost is like a barometer of our inner health. If we're praising, he says it almost is inner health made audible. You can hear the person's internal health. He says, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, they also spontaneously urge us to join them in praising the thing that they value. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It says the Scottish Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him, end quote. When you think about your purpose here on this planet, as vast as you just saw in those pictures in that description by Giglio, God is inviting us into a personal relationship with Him, to know Him, to praise Him, to let the world ring with our praise, and sometimes our praise machine Our hearts are just broken, aren't they? Sometimes it's it's for a real reason. It's for a just cause. We're struggling with some kind of depression or discouragement and we're finding it hard to praise and that is the time when we need to come back to the Psalter, come back to the book of Psalms and say, God, give me a song. I need something to sing to you. Come back to Psalm 8 and say, God, I need a song. God will say, here's one. Sing it right back to me. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? From the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The God who spoke all that you just saw into existence. He's your help. But he also, listen, commands you to praise his name. As you think about all that, ask yourself these two questions. When are you most tempted to lose sight of God's majesty in your life? And then this, have I staggered back into the prison of some sin pattern in my life and put those shackles of slavery back onto my wrists and I need Jesus today to come and set me free afresh so that I can sing my song to Him freely. Let's pray together and we'll respond.